This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. In 2018, we published a symposium on the work of Notre Dame professor Patrick Deneen, whose book, Why Liberalism Failed, provoked heated debate about the strengths and shortcomings of liberal democracy. One of the respondents was Yale political theorist Samuel Moyne, whose new book, Liberalism Against Itself, offers a critique of the so-called Cold War liberals, figures like Judith Schlar, Isaiah Berlin, and Lionel Trilling, who in different ways transformed liberalism by focusing on individual liberties instead of emancipation. On this episode, Moyne joins Commonweal Features Editor Alex Stern to advocate for another kind of liberalism, one that responds to war and political division with a return to the values of egalitarianism. Their conversation is coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Alex. It's good to have you here. Good to be here, Dominic. So before we get to your conversation with Sam Moyne, I want to ask about your essay, the one you wrote for the September issue of Commonweal, which was called How Not to Defend Liberalism. What did you argue and why do you feel it was important to write about liberalism now? Well, liberalism has been on the defensive for the last several years. On the right, you have people like Patrick Deneen arguing that liberalism promotes unchecked individualism and erodes the sense of community that democracy requires. And on the left, you have a long tradition arguing, sometimes with good reason, that liberalism is essentially the ideology of a ruling class that uses it as cover for racial and economic exploitation. So I think that liberalism does need defending, but I argue that many of those defending it, especially those I call centrist liberals in the essay, are doing a poor job. They tend to define liberalism in opposition to democracy. They associate it, I think, too often with neoliberal technocratic management. And they focus almost exclusively on individual rights, neglecting liberalism's more ambitious aims for creating a fair, more egalitarian society. Okay, so now that you lay that out, and that was a good piece and it got a lot of response from our readers, what should our listeners know about Moyne's book? Yeah, so there's a lot of overlap with what I was arguing there and Moyne's book, though he's taking a much longer view. In the book, he undertakes what you might call a prehistory of today's neoliberalism by looking at these Cold War liberals. He thinks that their kind of horrified reaction to European fascism and Soviet totalitarianism was understandable, but that they kind of overcorrected. They became overly suspicious of any ambitious attempts to envision a better society, and they wrongly blame the Enlightenment for the 20th century's worst horrors. As a result, they end up, according to Moyne, reducing liberalism to a bare-bones defense against the worst outcomes, neglecting liberalism's more emancipatory aims, and paving the way for a neoliberalism that Moyne thinks is responsible for many of our problems today. Okay, Alex, thanks. Let's take a listen to the conversation, and thanks for being here. Thanks, Dominic. Samuel Moyne, thanks for joining us on the Commonweal Podcast. Thanks for having me. So maybe we could start by defining these three different kinds of liberalism, this sort of more emancipatory 19th century liberalism, Cold War liberalism, and neoliberalism. Well, there's a sense in which Commonweal got me into this book because 
I was dragged into a kind of collective review of Patrick Deneen's book from 2018 called Why Liberalism Failed. And as I reflected on the debate, which we'll get to later, I realized just how out of step kind of historians were in thinking about the origins and trajectory of of liberalism. Deneen thinks of it as centuries old and comes out of the Reformation and religious wars. And the literature by professional historians like Helena Rosenblatt shows that the kind of first liberals were at least self-styled liberals were in the 19th century. And they are reflecting on the aftermath of the French Revolution, wanting to make its promises of freedom and equality good and in an in an institutionally durable way. And so it's not like they are not wary of the revolutionary outcomes, but they're primarily hoping to keep their fear in check in order to have a a kind of politics of liberal emancipation, still Mm -hmm. buying the idea that modernity is about turning our back on authority and embracing self-making and institutional kind of liberation as well as stability so that's how i define liberalism 1.0 if you will Uh and then liberalism 2.0 as you say reverses the optimism and in light of the way the 20th century is going in a sense retreats to a liberalism that's more minimalist it's more about patrolling the the kind of threats at the boundaries of the liberal order or within if they eventually start coming from there. And it's not about great expectations, but about kind of damage control and avoidance of the worst outcomes, like the fall of the liberal regime itself. And then, you know, I don't claim that Cold War form of 20th century, mid 20th century liberalism is the same as neoliberalism, but I suggest that in various ways, the way was paved for an emphasis on confining the state, making more room for markets, emancipating capital rather than human beings, turning our our backs on egalitarian solidarity, which which are really characteristics of the neoliberal temper of our own times. Right. So the kind of setup that you take in the book or the guiding thread of the book actually comes from one of these Cold War liberals, but before she becomes a Cold War liberal, right. namely Judith Schklar, who starts her career in a 1957 book called After Utopia, from a position pretty close to your own, right? critical of the way post-war liberals had given up on these aspirations of Enlightenment liberalism. And then later in her career, she becomes famous for her development of a quote-unquote liberalism of fear-focused like the other Cold War liberals on less on positive expansions of freedom and more on kind of avoiding threats and avoiding cruelty, especially. But in the 1957 book, Schklar talks about this kind of prehistory to the Cold War abandonment of these ideals, and that comes in the French Revolution. So that's when liberalism is already starting to turn against itself, according to her and according to you. So it's well known, I think, that modern conservatism started in reaction against the French Revolution. But how did the French Revolution affect 
liberals and their own kind of confidence in in the Enlightenment and Enlightenment political values? It's a great question. So I, I focus on Schlar in part to remind people that while, of course, it was understandable in the middle of the 20th century with the collapse of the Weimar Republic and World War II and Soviet totalitarianism to get depressed, especially if you had a Jewish background, as most Cold War liberals did, you know, Schlar really starts her career in a completely different place than you would be led to expect. And she's calling for a reclamation of the Enlightenment against those who, including among liberals and neoliberals alike in her time, who are rejecting it. And I think, you know, what's brilliant about her story is she says that, well, in a sense, from the time that conservatives responded to the French Revolution, inventing their ideology, liberals began to approximate conservatism. And I think she actually overdoes this because at a certain point, you have to wonder, well, if liberalism was conservative the whole time, then isn't there a risk of understating just how big the change was in the middle of the 20th century? I I do think she's right Mm -hmm. that um, there's like a slow drift across the 19th century, especially, say, in response to the 1848 revolution, Mm -hmm. uh, when liberals join the kind of overthrow of monarchy and then back the forces of order within a few short years. But in in the long run, I, I just see the kind of optimistic side of liberalism as having the upper hand. And What's valuable about Schlar's account is then is that notwithstanding this kind of greater continuity she sees, she is insistent that her own time is that of a kind of utter abandonment of the Enlightenment and of the ambitious kind of reformism that had been at the heart of liberal theory. And I agree with her on that point. And that's why I emphasize her kind of insight in that regard. Okay, great. So let's jump ahead then to the sort of immediate post-war period where this reaction took both fascism and the Holocaust, World War II, and the rise of Soviet communism driving this liberal rethink of of what liberalism is and what it should value the most. And the figure you focus on especially here is Isaiah Berlin, the Russian-British philosopher and intellectual historian who had a great deal to do with how we conceive of the Enlightenment today, right. and the critics of the Enlightenment, what he called the counter-Enlightenment. So could you talk a little bit about how Berlin came to define the Enlightenment and its sort of dialogue with its critics and how he conceived of, of their relationship with the 20th century horrors of, of fascism and communism? Absolutely. He actually knew Schlar. They were both from the same town, although he was a generation older. And when she was a a first-year grad student at Harvard in 1951, she took his class on an Enlightenment philosophy, which is a crucial moment for him because he's developing his whole approach and kind of theory as a historian of ideas. And as you say, even as she's positioning herself to, in a sense, reclaim the Enlightenment and try to call for a a liberalism that is about launching 
our powers, he develops a very skeptical account of enlightenment. So the irony is that though her, his student, she was in a sense one of his earliest critics mm -hmm. implicitly. And what I think Berlin does in this part of his work is, let's say, believe the Soviet Union's own claims to inherit the Enlightenment and then presumes that liberals then have to reject it, which mm -hmm. obviously doesn't follow at all. And in his historical work, Berlin tried to show that the Enlightenment was characterized by deterministic thinking and monistic thinking, and that in a sense, were he worried, though he sometimes denied this when challenged, especially in correspondence with friends, that he almost scapegoated the Enlightenment be simply because the Soviets had claimed its legacy and mm -hmm. really developed a kind of teleological view, just as he did later with the so-called counter-Enlightenment, which was a concept he developed a whole decade later in the 1960s to describe how fascism emerged from the right wing of, of European thought. The idea would be that the Enlightenment tells intellectuals that, you know, those who reason must take responsibility for the reformation of society and a kind of top-down plan. And in a sense, the philosoph become the Bolshevik vanguard and the reason becomes a recipe for, in a sense, authoritarian imposition of some group's beliefs about, you know, what society ought to be like. And there are going to be steps from one to the other. But in a sense, the Enlightenment is already an authoritarian plan in the making from Berlin's perspective. Do you think that sort of any of those criticisms have any legitimacy to them? I think a lot of people would argue, say, maybe Berlin went too far in that direction. Yeah. But there is something to the idea that Right. This kind of totalizing thinking in a very overly deterministic version of the Enlightenment, albeit yeah. did have some influence on some of these movements. Yeah, I guess I would start by saying, especially given what we've learned since, since the Enlightenment is not something that was well known in English right. until the 1960s. So these figures making claims on it are, in a sense, helping invent the whole idea. From what we've learned since, the Enlightenment was really pluralistic. And mm -hmm. the irony is that Schlar later herself, in a very different kind of criticism of Berlin, really emphasized that the Enlightenment was non-dogmatic and skeptical and so forth. And there's some evidence for that proposition. So I guess... The, there's surely a commitment to reason and the authority of science in the Enlightenment, much of it very revolutionary. And we all live in the world that enthronement of science has allowed. But I, I'm not sure it would be fair to say that the, the Enlightenment ought to be then held responsible for the authoritarianism of the Soviet Union just because it, it, it's it's unclear whether figures in the Enlightenment themselves adopted a kind of positivistic religion of science that does become characteristic of certain factions in the 19th century. 
Now, on the kind of religious front, it's probably true to say that especially in France, the Enlightenment thinking could become very hostile towards revealed religion and, 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 and the dogmatism of the Catholic Church as some philosophers perceived it. But by the same token, many others especially beyond the borders of France, were committed to new versions of religion, reasonable religion, reinventing Christianity in an Enlightenment spirit. And so now I think we see that the picture is very mixed. And if one wants to draw connections, which of course obtain, one has to, instead of just seeing like a necessary teleology, make a lot of distinctions and attend to how the path to to the Soviet Union was not one that was foreordained or even predictable. We'll have more of Alex's conversation with Sam Moyne in a minute. But first, I want to extend an invitation to join me and the Commonwealth staff for a free live event featuring poet and essayist Christian Wyman. He'll be talking about his new book, Zero at the Bone, 50 Entries Against Despair. That will be happening at a place called W83 in New York City on December 12th at 5 p.m. We'll continue to spread the word, so be on the lookout for reminders. Could you talk a little bit about the aspects of the liberal tradition that the Romantics make a contribution to and how figures like Berlin and Trilling abandoned those ideals and also how that sort of made liberalism into a more libertarian ideology in the process right well so romanticism refers to a kind of aesthetic and philosophical movement it's generally opposed to the enlightenment but then it turns out that all the early liberals self-styled at least the canonical ones that we talk about still like benjamin constant and Alexis de Tocqueville and John Stuart Mill were all romantics. And what that meant is that they said that the point of society is to make possible the highest life as they saw it, which is free self-creation among equal equal citizens. And the Cold War liberals are skeptical of that commitment in liberalism, which they worry again, leads to totalitarianism. And they have different takes on this. The The most censorious one is someone, you know, that we haven't mentioned, an Israeli named Jacob Talmon, mm-hmm. who uh, blamed 20th century horror on first Rousseau and then Romanticism. And Schlar's take in her first book is actually not terribly far from that position. It's a a little different because she claims that Romanticism led to poetic withdrawal from politics. And this was a, a grave error given that politics could become a scene of crime uh, in the 20th century. Uh, This was once a common view. People said, Oh, well, the nation of Beethoven and Goethe kind of, prized poetry and music so much that it it didn't have defenses set up against the coming of 20th mm-hmm. century tyranny. I think Berlin is the most complicated because it's true that in his most famous essay called Two Concepts of Liberty, he compares invidiously what he calls negative liberty 
which is freedom from interference, especially from the state with positive liberty, which has romantic sources and is about self-realization, sometimes through the agency of the state. And yet when you look at his writing, and I try to be laudatory in this regard, he's quite different from Talmon and Schlar. Even in the 60s, long before, sorry, in the 50s, before he's talked at all about the counter-enlightenment, he is interested in claiming that the Romantic Revolution is the kind of biggest thing that happened in modern times, even of greater significance, the Enlightenment setting up the new possibility of subjective truth, Mm. something that you and I can pursue differently because we're both creators and see the world differently. And he's very favorable towards it. So then the puzzle is about his ambivalence. How did he back a kind of libertarian account of freedom while so admiring the romanticism that actually had made liberalism possible in the first place? Mm -hmm. And so that's where I leave it with him. I, I think that my own view is that in in this scapegoating process, the Enlightenment, Rousseau, the French Revolution, Romanticism, Cold War liberals sometimes are aware of how much they're depriving themselves of resources that had been valuable for liberals and in a sense sometimes were valuable for themselves. Mm-hmm. Lionel Trilling is another example who is in a sense, nostalgic about romanticism and writes a lot about it as a critic, say, of William Wordsworth's poetry, but just thinks maybe it has to be cordoned off from politics because it's a source of danger and threat if it leads in the kind of in a tyrannical direction. So another element of the the liberal worldview that you think it's wrongly cut out of the picture is historicism, which is a difficult term with multiple different meanings. But could you talk about the type of historicism that you're focused on here, why that historicism was vital to the kind of progressive liberalism that the Cold War liberals discarded, and especially Popper is who you write about in this regard, how he acted and what that meant for Cold War liberalism. Sure. So historicism is originally a German word, and it it refers to something very different in the beginning, which is about the the idea that everyone's historically situated. But Popper, Karl Popper, this Austrian become English philosopher of science and political theorist, it really has in mind the idea that history is a script with almost like law-like regularities that drive it from its beginning to its end. And and that's actually in some ways opposite of what historicism meant originally, which implied that each moment in time is on its own and separate and needs to be studied as such. And books from one era need to be placed in that context and books from another era uh, need to be placed in the other context. Whereas historicism as Popper defines it really connects all the moments. And of course, he defines that view in order to convict it of a mistake and a dangerous mistake. Um, And his claim, which is not wrong, is that the Marxists in general, but especially Soviet Marxists in particular, claim to be able to discern 
the law-like evolution of history in order to provide the next steps, sometimes by speeding up the process. And his response is that history doesn't have laws. Now, I think he was actually right about that. But in the process, the an idea, kind of a, a more general idea that liberals had relied upon got lost in the shuffle, if you will, which is that history is a forum of opportunity. Freedom and equality, like Rome, aren't going to be built in a day. And you need to have a sense of emancipation as a process that moves in new directions and gets reaches more people and becomes more deeply institutionalized. And I guess my worry there is that Popper, who actually drifts right across this period, ending up a neoliberal, is cutting out from underneath the liberal tradition something that had defined it to its core, which was the kind of expectation about the future on which optimism depends. And so that's the nature of the argument there. Yeah, so historicism is caricatured as this simple-minded sort of scientism and then discarded, but in the process discards this much more nuanced conception of... Absolutely. I think if you look at Alexis de Tocqueville, just to take that one early liberal, he is very clear that we need to think of the coming of democracy within the framework of Christian providentialism. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that its form it's is you know a matter of destiny or fate actually there's lots of freedom to get things right or get things wrong and popper and berlin who wrote a related essay called historical inevitability were very critical of historicism because it allegedly rules out any sense of our moral responsibility as agents mm-hmm. there's no need to choose Right. Because it turns out that we, in order to understand the point of our freedom, we have to understand ourselves in a kind of long historical process in which we might be called upon to exercise our freedom to advance emancipation rather than set it back. Right. Okay, well, Tocqueville's providentialism, I think, gives us a good segue into the, the question of religion and the religious elements yes. of Cold War liberalism which you discussed through your reading of of Gertrude Himmelfarb, the wife of the neoconservative Irving Kristol, mother of Bill Kristol. And you write about her early career interpretation of Lord Acton. Could you talk about how she used Acton and his sort of Augustinianism to yes. bolster this kind of cautious, fatalistic version of liberalism? and replace some of the the discarded ideals we've been talking about with a version of the kind of moral law that Acton talked about. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I think that it's crucial that before they became neoconservatives, the crystals were Cold War liberals. Mm -hmm. And as with neoliberalism, when it comes to neoconservatism, we have to understand its autonomy, but also its roots in this predecessor formation. And it's just very interesting that having met as as Trotskyists, uh, both Himmelfarb and her husband, take a huge step in the 40s, which is to 
become Cold War liberals, partly under Lionel Trilling's influence, actually. So Himmelfarb's dissertation, she was a historian, and first book is about Lord Acton, who had been an earlier liberal in the later 19th century, who had been out of step with the spirit of liberalism of his own time. But in a sense, she helps allow to epitomize the spirit of Cold War liberalism. And he was still a liberal Catholic, famously very in an attitude of opposition to the First Vatican Council. But what Himmelfarb thinks is essential about him is that he gives up the Pelagianism of liberalism or other forms of Christianity, which is the famously the kind of alternative to the Augustinian perspective in, in the history of Christianity. It To me, it's very important that this earlier liberalism we've been talking about, which is about expectation and ab- above all about, in a sense, self-reform, can be linked to that Pelagian view that, well, humans have a role in their own salvation. You know, mm-hmm. they prepare them for themselves for it. They may, in a sense, engage in self-salvation, which for many made this view heretical. Acton's Augustinian, Augustinianism is about original sin and how ultimately we cannot transcend our fallen nature. And the reason that mattered politically for him, but especially for Himmelfarb, is that it places constraints on us. It says, don't dream big. Your very expectations could be rooted in sin, and you can't rely on this life, at least, to be one of that will fulfill your hopes. That's a famously kind of what Augustinians think. And she was very clear that while not a Christian, she was a Jew and not even a very observant one. Mm-hmm. She thought this Augustinian perspective could keep people from that older Pelagian mistake, as she saw it, which kind of played into the hands of the Soviets who promised reform and promised, if you like, salvation on earth. And Augustinianism blocked that error as she saw it. So I think the way that you're the way that you've talked about Himmelfarb's and Acton's relationship to Augustine is actually strikingly similar to the way that you describe Lionel Trilling's relationship to Freud. So Trilling brings this other element into the Cold War liberal mindset, Freudianism, and you see this as furthering the defeat and survivalism of sort of Cold War liberal ideology and also introducing a form of self-discipline and in a way making liberalism into a kind of personal project of self-denial almost. So could you explain how Trilling ended up there? And and he's a very interesting figure also because, as you mentioned earlier, he seems to be conflicted about this throughout his career. Yeah, he is someone who surprised me most as I was reading, reviewing this period. I'd avoided him, but I loved what I found because he struck me as the most kind of subtle Cold War liberal, while also someone who was most ambivalent about his own creation of it. And as I emphasize, while he couldn't embrace religion himself, even as a strategic matter in the way that Himmelfarb did, he Mm -hmm. found in Sigmund Freud, especially Sigmund Freud's account of 
aggression, a kind of, let's say, secular surrogate for the Augustinianism she insisted would place limits on liberal ambition. And he also argues very similarly to her that, well, liberals can learn from Freud that they can't expect too much. And when they do, they play into the hands of their enemies. They're fooled into being useful idiots mm -hmm. who embrace the wrong causes. And yet, as you say, if you read his work, especially his novel closely, he really didn't renounce dreaming big. Romantic poets were ones that he thought had hit on the right ideal for ourselves. He just thought it was, in a sense, too risky to reclaim. And he, in his own life, he entered a kind of perpetual mourning process where it was central that you don't, in a sense, renounce the ambition and idealism of self-making that you love, but you mourn its unavailability for you. Franz Kafka famously says, there's hope, just not for us. And that strikes me as Trilling's real commitment. But then his Cold War liberalism is something like a deeply conflicted one where he's never entirely sure he's made the right choice in treating the old liberalism as unavailable, including for his own life. Okay, so let's turn to Arendt now. And you, so you cast Hannah Arendt as, as belonging to this group of Cold War liberals, although she's a bit of a distinct figure among them. For one thing, she claimed herself that she wasn't a liberal. But your main interest is in showing through Arendt, who was more open about her views of anti-colonial revolutions during the Cold War. So your interest is in showing through her how Cold War liberals, on the one hand, were very suspicious of those types of revolutions to the extent that they spoke about them at all. And also that they made an exception, as Arendt did, in the case of Israel and Zionism. So it's this is the one place where they allowed for a kind of revolutionary nationalism and, right. and a state that's concerned with kind of higher, more activist ambition, stronger state power. And you cast this as, as hypocritical, understandably, given the Cold War liberals' silence or discouragement of other mm -hmm. forms of revolutionary activism in the developing world. So could you talk a little bit about why Arendt belongs in this group and how you see her views as her views of colonialism and the developing world as typical of the Cold War liberals. Right. You said that all very well. I'll just add that I included her, let's say, for strategic reasons, and it's to show how this very famous intellectual who's actually celebrated by completely different people mm -hmm. was not herself a Cold War liberal, but can be seen as a fellow traveler incorporating many of their commitments and then cast light on the Cold War liberals in their relation to world politics. Because as I reflected on the Cold War liberals, it just it seemed strange that they really did define freedom in a kind of Atlanticist way, not just a negative way, but a way that made it it gave it its home in in the kind of anglophone sphere or maybe the broader atlantic 
sphere, Mm -hmm. even as they're living through the most kind of emancipatory events in world history, just judged by the numbers of people that decolonization affected. And you look through their work and they don't really have much to say about it, but Arendt did. And she was, let's say, more open in her racialized skepticism of global freedom, in part because she saw decolonization is likely to be a kind of French revolutionary project that mm-hmm. engaged with poverty and suffering and what wouldn't could not be would not be about the creation of political freedom, which she associated with the American revolution. And so I, I use that fact to wonder if the Cold War liberals must have thought the same thing because mm-hmm. they weren't ones either like the earlier liberals to believe that their own empires could spread freedom, but also not ones that in a sense believe that freedom could be available to non-white peoples. But it's also true that I use her as a kind of key to unlock or at least think about Cold War liberal Zionism, because as you said, Cold War liberals do commit to freedom as an activist, nationalist, revolutionary, violent project at the margins of or beyond Europe in this unique Zionist case. And it's puzzling because someone like Berlin is very clear that, well, that's a legacy of the old liberalism that liberals in Mm -hmm. the 19th century had committed to nationalist revolution, the Risorgimento, or the probably most influential liberal ever, Giuseppe Mazzini, an Italian in the 19th century, get at what Berlin meant. But then it's puzzling why he was so favorable towards the Jews maintaining that genetic link to earlier liberalism, but no one else should try, Mm -hmm. or at least garnered his enthusiasm. Yeah. Do you see that the Cold War liberal ideology as still contributing to the the current situation in in Israel and obviously right. the situation there has deteriorated once again right. i could see like a defender of the the cold war liberal ideology kind of making the move of agreeing with you that they made a, a kind of hypocritical exception here yeah but having the opposite takeaway to you which is basically that they shouldn't have made the exception right right yeah i I'm ambivalent myself, but it's only fair to say that their vision for Israel was a liberal one, and they were actually very uncomfortable with the kind of socialistic spirit in which Israel was actually founded by the Labour Party. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they maybe would have to think hard about whether there were, in a sense, ethno-national foundations to even that the liberal polity that they hope to see in Israel. And regardless, someone like Berlin, I think very revealingly says, it doesn't really matter what Israel's policies are. It matters that it exists to provide normalization for Jews who need it. And this, I think, suggests just a big double standard about who's violence is allowed and whose isn't and and i can imagine liberals concluding that well 
liberalism is lost and Zionism to the extent it was ever in it. And but I can also imagine the double standard continuing because I think mm -hmm. there have been many errors of the Cold War liberals who maintain approximately the same double standard as the original ones did. When I was a kid in the New Republic magazine, which was the beacon of Cold War liberalism in the later Cold War and through the 1990s and even past the millennium, that it was very strongly committed to this same, let's say, hypocrisy, freedom at home without much discussion of what kind of social, progressive social policy it required a kind of default skepticism about third world or global South emancipation, and then of, of an inveterate Zionism that mm -hmm. was maintained against all skeptics or all those who raised critical questions. Mm -hmm. So the last question, the book concludes with a call for a return to a kind of romantic liberalism concerned with more progressive aims and the goals of that we've been talking about developing human potential self-creation and so forth and you mentioned that while this liberalism would draw from older sources like mill and tocqueville it would also have obviously to be something completely new responding to the unique problems caused by cold war liberalism caused by neoliberalism yeah. So yeah. can you talk a bit about how you might imagine that process working out under ideal circumstances? In other words, what can liberals do to change liberalism? Yeah, I, I guess I have a, a kind of sympathy for Cold War liberalism be, to the extent that there are often threats to freedom and fear is warranted in response to them and enemies have to be dealt with. But I think we can make a kind of internal criticism of the approach, which we've now seen revived in recent decades, and then an external one. The internal one is to say, well, focusing on damage control and harm reduction and regime continuity alone uh, seems to somehow be a recipe for not guaranteeing even these kind of minimalist ends. Mm -hmm. It, it, if you only have a succession of enemies and you never strive for bigger things, maybe you are helping produce that train of enemies and not entirely, but I just think the kind of constant discovery that after communism, there are terrorists and then there's the internal enemy of enemies of democracy. It seems like it's a result of the approach itself in part mm -hmm. and the liberals don't seem to be able to provide the basic security that they say is the first item on the agenda and then there's a more external criticism that maybe the cold war liberals overlearn from their time schlar was right and there there could be another liberalism that reclaims the ambitions of the past the enlightenment commitment to build our powers, the romantic belief in free self-creation as the highest good, the historicist view that we need to think of ourselves as in a, a, a historical process of emancipation. And maybe that would, in a sense, do better, not just at guaranteeing that 
people find liberalism appealing and do things like vote for it against Donald Trump or whomever, but it would also provide people something worth believing in that in the end, it's really important that we commit to something that isn't just credible, but true. And so it's, that's the nature of the argument. And I want to be very clear, as you suggested, that I'm not saying we just go back right? because uh, there are so many flaws, but you can go back to the future and rescue the ambition uh, of earlier liberals and reclaim it for the sake of a, a, a new liberalism that isn't as focused on patrolling the borders for enemies and only to see them perpetually looming. Yeah. Well, that was great. Thank you for, for joining the Commonwealth Podcast, Sam Moyne. Thank you for having me. Samuel Moyne's new book is Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times, and it's available now from Yale University Press. You can find Alex Stern's essay, How Not to Defend Liberalism, in our September print issue and on our website. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.